How does an island, a family, rebuild after a climate disaster? In Dominica, an island nation in the West Indies, the aftermath of Hurricane Maria left many families to grieve for their homes, for their family members. And for members of the Dominican diaspora, the distance can make processing that grief really complicated. Hafiday and welcome to Inherited. We share the work of young audio storytellers, hoping to uplift a new generation of climate advocacy. I'm your season host, Shailen Martos, and this is season three, episode one, Mama's House. When Kamara Aaron visited her grandmother in Dominica, she was a child, too young to fully connect through deep conversations about the culture and history of their island. When Hurricane Maria made landfall in 2017, Kamara's family lost their matriarch and her home. Today, Kamara shares a personal piece on how she and her family are still dealing with that loss. Without further ado, here's Kamara Aaron with Mama's House. My memories of my grandmother's house started at a gas station. We're in Upper Wall House in the southwest of Dominica, and my parents are handing me off. My mom gets Christmas, my dad the days after. My dad is driving me north to Lagon, the town where he grew up. My stepmother's in the passenger seat, I'm in the back, Beyonce's on the radio. The road we take is just two lanes along the west side of the island. To my left, the Caribbean Sea, crystal blue-green. To my right, the stone face of the mountains, pale pink and dry. The drive is an hour, maybe two. We wind through Portsmouth on a road that hugs Prince Rupert's Bay. Further down this road is Purple Turtle, my favorite beach with black sand and dark water. But first we visit Mama. My dad pulls over. There's a rooster crowing, Waves lapping the shore behind me, neighbors calling as they pass. The sun is hot on the back of my neck. It's cooler as we take the alley, slipping off the main road. Over the gutter, maybe three or four houses back, is my grandmother's. There's one squarish hut, painted sea blue. It's one level, but raised on cinder blocks. There's stairs out front with a bright white railing. She has a second rectangular structure this one made out of bare brown-gray wood to the right. Between them is a concrete courtyard with a raised bed. I think my grandmother's inside the blue house, but I don't go in. This is just a memory, and I can't remember the way. For now, this is as close as I can get. September 19, 2017, 8.18 a.m. Thinking of you this morning. I'm concerned for you and your family. Stay safe, and you're in my prayers. When Hurricane Maria hit Dominica, I was 2,000 miles away in my first month of college. The weeks before the storm, my dad and I had been in touch here and there about his new baby 
about my grandmother's failing heart, about the classes I was starting. September 19, 424 p.m. Thinking of you as I leave sociology, it's a really cool class. You'd really like it. I didn't hear from him for five days. We were watching news of the storm, the hurricane. They were pretty alarmed because they were saying they had not seen a a, a hurricane build up speed that quickly. That is not its forward movement, but the speed of of its winds. They had never seen that. My dad, Philbert, is remembering the night of September 18th, 2017, when Maria made landfall as a Category 5 storm. He was at home in Dominica with my stepmom and their month-old baby, Aluchi. And so they were expressing alarm. And at that point, a gust of wind took out our service. So it went dark. And all night, we spent actually bailing out water as if it were a boat. The wind was so strong and the rain was so heavy that water was coming into the house. We couldn't tell from what crevices or openings and water was actually spilling into the house as if it were a faucet. All night, they moved the baby Aluchi from room to room to keep him from getting wet. Somehow, he slept through it all. The next morning, my dad joined the other men in his neighborhood to take stock of the damage. It was tradition to see what needed to be done and who could help. We live on a paved road, and that road was now paved with roofs, other people's roofs. So you could not walk on that road because roofs of different colors, some of them like almost intact, had fallen onto the road as if they were paving stones. We didn't know everything that had happened on the island, but you know, we knew that was a big one. Since power was down across the island, my dad wasn't receiving my messages over WhatsApp. I was still sending them. September 20, 9.01 a.m. Waking up thinking of you, praying for you and your family. September 21, 8.19 a.m. Hopefully you'll be online soon and the island will receive aid. I've been following the damage on the news and praying you're okay. I miss you. He wasn't receiving any messages from me or anyone else until a few days after the storm when he managed to get a phone call from a colleague. He was talking real cool and saying, you know, hey, comrade, I've called you just to check on you. And I was just listening. And then he mentioned my mom. And I must have had a certain response. And that is when he realized I did not know my mother was dead. My dad and stepmother sped north to Lagon. It was the same drive we made when I visited, except now the roads were cluttered with debris from the storm and bridges were washed away. 
My dad first drove to his mother's house, but no one was there. So he tried the homes of his brothers Addison and Aldrich. They too were empty. Then in the cemetery across the street from Addison's house, he noticed a small funeral. So I ran to see if it was my mother being buried. And it was my family, and they were lowering my mother into the grave. Mama had passed earlier that day. Without power on the island, there was no refrigeration. She had to be buried immediately. My uncles had made a small window in the casket in the hopes my dad would come in time to pay his respects. And he unscrewed the flap so that I could talk to my mom and touch her. And her, she was still warm. And so I touched her and they lowered her body back into the grave and we all covered her up. My dad's really frank. Before this interview, he waved off my concern it would be painful for him to discuss Maria. But recounting these moments, he went quiet. Uh, it's, it's emotional, but it's bearable. Uh, it's, you know, it's something I've reflected on and remember, you know, so it's, it's, it's absolutely bearable. I, f- I feel lucky that, I, you know, I mean, it was really, really luck. I finally heard back from him on September 24th, five days after my first text. We are okay. Mama passed peacefully in her sleep today. I got to the burial in the nick of time. I love you. We must share in sociology and all your classes. I was sad, I'm sure. I can't remember what I felt. Mama was my only remaining grandparent. I had spent the most time with her of any of them, but I didn't know her super well. I only saw her once a year, in those days after Christmas. I let myself get swept away in the tide of my freshman year. I didn't think of her much. Maria would travel up the islands, killing around 3,000 people in Puerto Rico, which caught the brunt of the hurricane. In Dominica, 65 people died in the storm, which cost the country about 1.3 billion in damages. I couldn't go back until a year later, in 2018, when I returned to Dominica for the first time since the storm. My mom took me to Lago to say goodbye. When we got there, we pulled over, went through the alley and over the gutter. We went about three or four houses back. But there was no blue house, just a few cinder blocks that had once held it up. There was no plain structure, just a bare concrete bed. All that remained of my grandmother's house were the stairs leading up to her front door. But now they led to nowhere. I remember standing there and just crying. I'm trying to remember my grandmother's house. Please be patient with me. I enter in the west, into the front room of the blue house. There's exposed wooden planks in the walls. She served me tea here at the dining table covered in a pale tablecloth. 
I'm drinking mostly milk and sugar with a tea bag somewhere in there. In my memory, my feet don't touch the ground, so I must be young. I can't see my grandmother, but I feel her behind me. Walking east, there's a sitting room where I'd visit with my dad. There's sofa benches flush on the wall, making the room like a corridor. But it's not claustrophobic. It's cozy. Beads hang in the doorway leading out back. They click in the breeze. There's always a breeze. I see Mama in profile, catching the bottom curve of her jaw. Her skin is red-brown, her face thin with apple cheeks. She's frowning, though not in displeasure. It's just the way her face falls. She's speaking to my dad and watching TV in the back left corner. I'm beside her, half listening, half watching, and telling her, yes, I am listening to my mother. I think to the north of us, there's a bedroom where I remember moonlight coming in, cool blue as I sleep with my grandmother, and a bathroom. I can't remember where it is, but I see a bar of bone white soap. Out the front stairs, across the yard, and up a step, there's a second structure, the kitchen and dining room. I can remember sitting over a bowl of soup and chicken, beads of oil orange in the broth. There's a refrigerator here and more beads tinkling. Somewhere there's Mama selling ice pop. I can't taste the soup, but I can taste this. Sweet, creamy, cold, the same color as her tea. I'm trying to rebuild my grandmother's house, if only in my mind. But I don't remember enough. There's so much I'm missing that I failed to account for. I need more memory. I need help. If someone told you to jump off a cliff, would you do it? No. But there is something to be said about leaping into the unknown. That's what our podcast, Outside In, is all about. It's a safer way to explore all the weird, wonderful, and uncomfortable questions you have about the natural world. Like, what's it like to decompose? All of the germs and bacteria is saying, okay, baby, we gotta get rid of this person. Or, why the hell do we have lawns? Who the hell needs five acres of ornamental grass? I'm Nate Hedgie, host of Outside In, a podcast where curiosity and the natural world collide. Sometimes it's serious, sometimes it's ridiculous, but it's always a wild journey. That's Outside Slash In from New Hampshire Public Radio. While change may not happen overnight, the movement for a more just society is gaining momentum. Tune in to Crooked Media's Pod Save the People, where every week you can learn about the stories that are impacting communities of color from people of color. With hosts DeRay McKesson, Kaya Henderson, Miles Johnson, and Diara Ballinger, Pod Save the People gives an exciting blend of politics, culture, and social issues all in one place. From book censorship to discussing Beyonce's impact on society. Tune in to Pod Save the People every Wednesday on your favorite podcast platform. I consider myself the memory of my family. 
I try to remember as much as possible and I try to uh, find out as much as possible from, from them. To recover my grandmother and her house, I called my dad. He remembers her so differently than I do. In my memory, she's always seated. For him, she's in perpetual motion. My memory of her, I see her, you know, now as moving, moving very swiftly, wearing a floral skirt and uh, something in her hands, some kind of ladle, some kind of spoon, some kind of a cutlass, a knife, uh, because she was always doing that. One of the most significant memories in his home and of his mother is of a pig being slaughtered. It's Christmas in Lagos. The men who work my father's father's boat are gathered at their family home. There's the smell of, you know, of the pig being scraped. There's the smell of raw meat. There's the smell of blood. There's the sound. That sound is something you don't forget. So the sound of uh, a pig being butchered is, is, is really ear-piercing, ear-splitting. And uh, it's also the sound of festivities. One of his brothers, Alvin, is collecting blood from the pig in a bowl with spices and peppers. They're in the laku, the courtyard between the two huts, where there are raised beds of veggies and a fowl coop and this hanging, bleeding pig. Meanwhile, Mama is in the separate kitchen, waiting for the blood and spices and peppers from Alvin to make boudin, or blood pudding, for her Christmas feast. From listening to my dad, I realized there was a utility and beauty of the space I hadn't recognized as a kid. I never thought about how unique my grandmother's house was. Now I wanted to know more, to recover the structure, so I called someone I thought could help. Adam Philogene Heron is a lecturer in visual anthropology at Bristol University. He never met my grandmother, but he literally wrote a book on houses like hers, tikais, as they're called in Creole, small huts. The dimensions of the tikai are small, and what you find is that when people have extended their tikai, rather than building a much bigger structure, what they'll tend to do is they'll tend to use that same small footprint and place several houses side by side. He's explaining to me that the layout of Mama's house, the court and the two huts, are classic tikai. Having the separate kitchen could protect the home from a cooking fire spreading, but it protected them from larger threats too. Dominica has always had storms, and they're bracing for more in the future. It's a tropical island in the hurricane belt with nine active volcanoes. It's battered by earth, wind, and sea. The houses are built to endure it all. In the case of strong wind, separate smaller homes had less of a chance of lifting, so you could have more space without putting yourself at more risk. And so the Tikai is an amazing formation because it brings in elements of indigenous dwelling styles, attached A-frame huts, um, mo moina huts as they be referred to in the Kalinago context. While there's no single point of origin to the tikai, they reflect the communities that made their home in Dominica in the 1800s, the indigenous Kalinago, the European colonists, and the Africans they imported and enslaved. In the 1830s, the Africans were emancipated and forced off the estates they'd lived on. They settled on a thin stretch of public land around the island shoreline, the King's Three Chains. The newly freed people brought with them their dwellings. These communities would become places like Lagos, where my dad grew up. 
On this Christmas, when Mom is done preparing the feast, the men will go eat at the Blue House. They go up the stairs, the only piece that survived. Back then, it was painted with leftover supplies from Potsmouth Secondary School for Dominique's independence celebration. They will all eat in the front room, called La Salle, or the hall. They'll pull chairs from where they're lined up out of the way, because this room is only used for special occasions. After the food is done, the men will go home, and my grandparents and my dad's two sisters will retire to their bedrooms, or La Chambre. The brothers, all five, including my dad, will clear the front room to put down their bedding. I remember Christmas with my grandmother as quieter, less chaotic, less jam-packed. I remember the house feeling bigger than my dad does, but then again, I never had to share it. I learned from Adam so many details about my grandmother's house. I thought climate-resilient design would look high-tech, chrome, and glass. Instead, it was simple, wooden. Others have talked about houses now, concrete houses that are built against the wind. Uh, but people, people who, who lived in the tikai and who designed the tikai, they built them with the wind. So the idea is that they'll move with and allow the wind to pass through at various different points. There was the orientation of the house, which was angled to catch the sea breeze and cool the dwelling, which was why I always heard those beads clicking in the wind. There was the composition. The houses were made out of hard local woods. That explains the beautiful wooden planks I saw. There were those pillars. While the blue house was raised, it likely wasn't fixed to its foundation. This allowed floods, of which there were many, to pass under the house without damaging the structure. And in the case of a major storm, the house could bend, shift, and move. And it was not uncommon that we'd hear examples from Hurricane David of folks whose houses had moved entirely from one location to another. And we've got this incredible photo in Pottersville of a house that lays intact across the, the middle of the main road with onlookers on one side watching. Almost it appears as though they're kind of marveling at the fact that this house is still standing, but it's been shifted entirely from its foundation. In August 1979, Hurricane David hit Dominica as a Category 3 storm. My dad was a teenager at the time and a wild child with scars up and down his legs from all the trouble he'd get into. At first, he enjoyed the storm. It was his first hurricane. He went outside to be a part of it. And we were just having fun, eating fruits, drinking, you know, coconuts, and uh, just having fun. Every now and again, we would help an elderly person. We saw a few galvanized sheets fly, we saw trees break, we saw rivers swelling, but we still stayed out. But by midday, his fun soured. We realized that the storm was bad enough that life was going to change. And we shifted from having fun to now collecting fruits, coconuts and, you know, and avocado pears and oranges and so forth, because we realized no, it was a tragedy. And our family would have to, we would need food after that. That night, my dad and his family sheltered in their house. His brother Alvin, the one who had collected the pig's blood, was working as a sailor at the time. He had invited a passenger from Guadeloupe to stay with the family. My dad remembered her praying all night. The next morning, they took stock of the damage. 
People were missing. The agricultural um, crop was destroyed. Boats had had wrecked. Trees down, roofs out, and so forth. And that started almost a year of real bad misery. Hurricane David's winds reached about 140 miles before it ripped up the West Indies. It killed about 60 people and left about 60,000 on the island without homes. And amidst all that destruction, my dad's home was largely untouched. Our house had very little damage, very little. A, A large Julie mango tree close to our house, it broke, but... mm, I don't think there was one sheet of galvanized or zinc uh, that came off. So largely our house was unscathed. So it survived Hurricane David unscathed. There were a few factors that protected them. The storm came from the southeast. My dad in the northwest didn't face the brunt of it. There's a spine of mountains up the island north to south that protect the west, the leeward side, from storms. But that alone doesn't explain why his house fared better than other homes in Lagall. Larger homes, nicer homes. There was this middle-class person who had an upstairs and downstairs modern um, concrete and steel house. His roof was lifted, complete and intact, and taken and dropped into Prince Rupert's Bay. Flat roofs, like those on modern houses, act like airplane wings. Air gathers underneath them, building upward pressure, lifting them. Tikai roofs are sloped, shaped like a mountain made with your hands. They create downward pressure. They stay put. These houses often fared much better than nearby concrete homes that had roofs that didn't have the kind of steep pitch of the tikai and would fly away um, and leave the house wide open, grinning, as people would say, with the rafters looking like teeth facing up to the sky. When working on his book, Still Standing, Adam conducted oral histories with families living and surviving tikais. As part of his process, he asked about their experiences through hurricanes like David and Maria. And many folks, we had this kind of common refrain that people repeated over and over, which was, yeah, man, I just lost one, two galvanized. It was just one, two galvanized that that flew away. And two or three sheets of galvanized, typically no more than that. The tikais are disappearing now, in part because there's a trend towards more modern concrete and steel houses, and in part because some are old and nothing natural lasts forever. Adam's book ends with plans for readers who choose to build their own tikais. With Shape, a Dominican preservation society, Adam's pushing for some tikais to be conserved instead of leveled. The tikai is a window into history, and elements of it could represent a way forward. So on the face of it, it seems like a simple, small house. It seems like a kind of a quaint, kind of timeless picture. And then you realize the layers to it. You realize the stories that inhabit this place. And you realize that there's a strong ethic of survival that's kind of woven into the materiality of these spaces. That phrase, ethic of survival, touched me. Climate change is the end of the world as we know it. But the peoples that built the Tikais were enduring their own apocalypse, the end of plantation slavery. They managed to survive, and so did their homes.
In the years before Maria that my dad lived in Dominica, he visited his mother often. They didn't talk much in his childhood, but as adults, they'd sit in the hall with my stepmother and gossip. So I would ask her, comment you sac à fait? Um, that is, how are you, what's going on? And she might say, you know, which means I listen, I'm just listening to what's being said, to listen, listening to what's going on. And I, or sometimes I would literally tease her by telling her, you know, give me the, you know, tell me the rumors that are going about, you know. He'd ask about her life, her childhood, her marriage, collecting all the details he didn't know when he was a kid. I wish I had that time with her, too. When I originally pitched this story, I was preoccupied with the lack, with those stairs that now went nowhere, with what I had lost. I felt like as surely as climate change was taking my future, it was robbing me of my past as well. On its face, this was a simple story, but in reporting it, less so. Speaking to my dad and Autumn, delving into my own memory, showed me how much of my grandmother I still had. It also showed me intricacies in my grandmother, in her house, in my heritage. My history is more enduring, more complicated, more hopeful than I could have imagined. I can't tell you what that means for my future, but I think it means I can't just write it off. That as much as I lack, I have. That loss is painful, but it's not a full picture. That I'm taking my grandmother, my past, my ethic of survival, all into the future with me. Hey there, it's Shaylin again. Thank you so much for listening to Mama's House by Kamara Aaron. That's all for this episode of Inherited. We'll return next week with an all-new episode featuring another impactful climate storyteller. We're also starting something new for our show, interviews with season three storytellers on their process, their growth, and their next steps. Look out for those BTS bonus episodes every Friday. I don't think that I thought of it as like Inherited is going to be my opportunity to do personal storytelling that kind of happened and kept happening. We'll hear about Kamara's most moving moments from Mama's House and her new short story soon to be published in a YA Black horror anthology. Sainama Asi for joining us for episode one. There is so much more in store for season three of Inherited, so make sure to tune in Wednesdays wherever you get your podcasts. Inherited is brought to you by YR Media, a national network of young journalists and artists creating content for this generation. We're distributed by Critical Frequency, a woman-run podcast network founded by journalists. The story Mama's House, featured in today's episode, was written, produced, and voiced by Kamara Aaron, an Inherited Season 3 storyteller. Our Season 3 host and producer is Shaylin Martos. Our co-creators and senior producers are Georgia Wright and Jules Bradley. Our executive editor is Amy Westervelt, and our audio engineer is James Riley. Our engineering fellow is Christian Romo, and our director of podcasting is Sam Chu. 
Our intern is Esther Omalola. Original music for this episode created by these young musicians at YR Media. Christian Romo, Anders Knudstad, Noah Holt, Jacob Armenta, Chaz Whitley, Michael Diaz, Sean Luciano Galarza, and Jay Mejia Cuenza. Music direction by Oliver Cuya Rodriguez. Other music by APM. Art for this episode created by YR's Marjorie Massacat. Art direction by Brigado Bautista. Creative direction by Pedro Vega Jr. Special thanks to Rebecca Martin, Maggie Taylor, Kyra Kyles, and Eli Arberton. Also to Olive Bell, Michaela Laurent King, and Zeth Stedman, Philbert Aaron, and Adam Philogene Heron. For the work of Still Standing, thanks again to Adam Philogene Heron and to the Tikai Collective, Olive Bell, Marika Honeychurch, Gianna Royer, Metsy Didier, Zeth Stedman, Amy Victor, Jaheem Nelson, Polly Petulo, and Dr. Annabelle Wilson. Please throw us a rating or maybe even a review on the Apple Podcast app. It goes a long way towards getting these stories out there. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at InheritedPod. If you want to learn more about our show and this season's cohort of storytellers, head to our website at yr.media slash inherited. Sign up Asi for listening and see you next Wednesday. <laughs>